Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and world. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to Mutuality Matters. My name is Blake Dean, and I'm here with my co-host Aaron Monez, and you are listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. And we are so excited and grateful that Dr. Stephanie Buchanan Crowder is here to join us today. Um, Dr. Crowder is Vice President of Academic Affairs and Academic Dean at Chicago Theological Seminary. She is the first woman and first African-American to hold this position in the institution's history. She is also the first African-American woman promoted to full professor at Chicago Theological Seminary. As Professor of New Testament, Dr. Crowder is a noted Bible scholar, versatile speaker, and prolific author. She got a bachelor's degree from Howard University and Master's of Divinity from United Theological Seminary, a Master's of Arts from Vanderbilt University, and a PhD from Vanderbilt. We are so grateful that you have joined us today, Dr. Crowder. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Blake and Aaron. Nice to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. So, longtime listeners will know that we always begin an episode by saying what we're watching, reading, or listening to. So Aaron Monez, ball is in your court. What are you watching, reading, or listening to? Okay, I've got one that is a little bit more highbrow than my my usual subjects. Um, I am reading Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos. And the book's a little a little bit dated. I think it probably harkens back to like the the early nineties, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. But it's one of those books. I was going on vacation. It was on my shelf. I grabbed it, started reading it, but the jury's still out. I'm not going to make a judgment call on it because you know it, it's Walker Percy, and and there's a lot of uh, notoriety and and fame around these this writer. But I I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to let you know and see how it's how it's going. So what about you, Blake Dean? What are you watching, reading, or listening to? So I am listening to a lot of music these days because I um, have been designing a website for my other job. So I've just, the music has been keeping me, um, keeping me. And so it's been a lot of like Rosemary Clooney, Billie Holiday. Like it's been like just some like jazzy, jazzy oldies. And I'm very, very grateful. There's nothing better than those aching voices like a Rosemary Clooney or a Billie Holiday. So that's what I've been listening to. Dr. Crowder, what about you? So I'll, um, so somebody, so Aaron did reading, you did music, so you did listening, I'll do watching. Wonderful. Um, I just finished watching Midnight Mass. Um, Yeah, so I can't remember the guy, but he's supposed to be like the new Stephen King, and Stephen King has sort of passed, has affirmed, I can't remember his name but it was like eight episodes I don't know if I'm allowed to say the network but it's eight episodes on this certain network and um it's phenomenal I'm going to use bits and pieces of it um in my classes um, for my gospels class and my epistles class and so I mean just this it it reminded me a lot I don't know if you remember True Blood from some years ago so it was kind of like I don't know a revamped True Blood um Mm. I, I guess I want to say I really enjoyed it. I'm usually not into gore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, sure. But it, it was gore, theology, you know, religion, small mm. town, 
Um, so all of that. So yeah, just finished Midnight Mass. Oh, wow. I Okay, I've heard of this. And I tend to stay away uh, from the scary genres. But so many people um, that I admire, especially like theologians are talking about this. And so I might just, I might just have to break my own rule and give it a shot. But it's it that's, that's fantastic. Um, well, Dr. Carter, we are so, so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Your book, um, when Mama Speaks um, has been one that uh, was published back in 2016, but we want to go ahead and put it up for our listeners um, as one of those books that we would recommend you having on your bookshelf. And I w- wondered if you might give our readers a taste about um, about some of the threads that go through this book, specifically about how you talk about identity. I remember reading in your introduction, you said the book is a, a culmination of years of wrestling with aspects of my identity and trying to find some way to teach, write, and preach myself through the dissonance. First of all, that's just a beautifully worded sentence. Um, but can you can you expand on the core theme of identity for our listeners and uh, why we need to reckon with it in a book about motherhood and mothers in scripture? Well, well let me say, I think we need to wrestle with identity, period. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, right. um, I think often when it comes to biblical studies and religion, we don't we don't begin with identity. We we tend to begin with, you know, belief and, and spirit and and faith, if those are our kind of religious languages or religious words mm-hmm. and discourse. But I think, you know, when I teach students, I said, you know, before we talk about interpretation, before we talk about hermeneutics, before we get into the Gospels and Synoptics, let's just begin with who we are. Mm. Who are you? Who am I? Because I think that helps us to unpack and to mind what it is that we're bringing to the text. Yeah. Um, so that's one, that's one piece of that. The other piece of that, in the Guild, Society of Biblical Literature, American Academy of Religion, you know, for years and years and decades and decades, you know, we, we'd see people, they would bring their children and, you know, people would have their spouses at these gatherings, but very little was their engagement around family. Mm. Um, mm. And so it's really not been until the, maybe the last 10 to 15 years where we actually have sections and workshops around what does it mean to be a scholar and a parent or a scholar and a mother and the role of family. So you're, you're now seeing more um, works around children in the biblical world a parenting in the biblical world, motherhood <laughs> in the <laughs> biblical sense. And I think it's because we're now owning up to, and we feel that now it's a safe space for us to talk about that we're not just scholars and researchers and professors, but, you know, we have another life. You know, we have yeah. children and spouses and family. And that really, for me, impacts um, what it is that I teach, um, you know, um, because I, I, you know, I'm calling myself this sort of mama scholar, womanist mama. Um, and so much of who I am is wedded to my identity, you know, mm-hmm. as an African-American mother of two sons. Um, mm-hmm. So this work came out of that. It also came out of my identity as a, as a preacher. I'd get to, you know, invitations to preach at Women's Day. That's why I grew up Baptist. And so we have all these, <laughs> right. you know, right. well, and let me specify National Baptist USA Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Let mm-hmm. me specify which Baptist. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, the lady preacher would get invitation to preach at these lady days, Women's Day, and then prayer breakfast. And so it was a watershed moment for me, Erin and Blake, when 
I had just spoken at a prayer breakfast and I, you know, was talking about my own journey and motherhood. And I think I'd chosen a text around mothers and, um, you know, an attendee came to me afterwards and said, well, what do you have for young mothers? Because she said, you know, in our church, in our community, our young mothers are really struggling. And that was just, uh, you know, a watershed moment, just, you know, stopped me dead in my tracks because I'd been really, I hadn't talked about motherhood a lot. Um, and so this was kind of a, a four way to do that. So a chance for me to come to, I, I guess, I guess a come to Jesus moment with my own identity. And also to put that at the forefront that we can no longer in the academy just ignore, if you will, or try to erase who we are outside of those hallowed halls, if you will. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that so much. And in, in reading your book, one thought that kept coming back was, was how you talk about the, the double and triple consciousness, these intersections of all these different parts of yourself, and the fact that it hasn't always been safe to talk about these things, especially as a career woman or a theologian. And and this is one of the reasons I want to recommend this book to our readers, but also um, because I find that, uh, and, and Blake and I, uh, we we really love this topic of motherhood. It's, it's one that we try to keep regularly on the podcast because there are so many books out there about biblical motherhood that are not so biblical and more culturally based. And that culture is is very white and it's very um, uh, sort of surface level. And so when, when a book like this comes along that is both personal because you put a lot of yourself into this book, but is also theologically rich, it is just, it is just wonderful. And we just really appreciate you writing it and talking to us about that today. So just a little, little pitch to the listeners while I had the chance. That was for me is, you know, what is it that that was a void? Um, so what was not written, what was not mm. out there? And I think there were definitely, you know, some, not a lot, but there were some feminist um, writings on, on motherhood and maternity, but not a lot. There was a lack, a dearth of you know, womanist or black feminist talking mm -hmm. about motherhood. I mean, yes, we had um, Teresa Fry Brown, um, yeah. you know, her book, you know, or, or it was really Cheryl Chowns and Jill's her book, If It Wasn't for the Women, where she talked some about mothers. You had Renita Weems in her book, Showing Mary, yeah. where she talks about, um, you know, her being a mom, being, being a mother. You have some essays where, you know, you get a little bit here and a little bit there, if you will. Um, but you didn't really have this kind of umbrella of womanist paternal thought. Yeah. And so I said, well, surely, because, you know, I could point to <laughs> uh, this biblical scholar, this ethicist, this theologian, this homiletician, you know, who were, were mothers. But mm -hmm. there was nothing collective and nothing, mm -hmm. you know, to say, well, here's, here's kind of a category, if you will. Here's a way of naming who we are and what we do. Would you mind really quick for our listeners who haven't read your book, um, briefly describing what you mean by womanist maternal thought? That's kind of the category that you've, you've created for this work. So let's begin with the word womanist, right? Um, so, you know, we, the, the, the etymology goes back to Alice Walker. And so mm -hmm. Alice Walker um, in her book, In Search of Our, and here we go, In Search of Our Mother's Garden. So there yeah. we go. Um, <laughs> you know, delineates this kind of 
quadrilateral understanding of, of womanist. And so, you know, she ends with kind of, you know, womanist is to feminist as, you know, purple is to lavender, um, if you will, a darker shade, a different shade. Keeping in mind that Alice didn't really, Alice Walker didn't really have theology in mind. Yes, she says in that definition that a womanist loves spirit, but she didn't have ARSBL womanist and feminist, you know, thinkers in, in um, theology and biblical studies in mind. So we've kind of co-opted that. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do we begin to think about, you know, this idea of this womanist as womanish? as you know, bold and brash and bodacious and courageous, who loves spirit, who has a different way of thinking about a woman's place, who has a different way of thinking about the role of women, the role of men in women's work, that it is about community, that we don't leave the men behind, but we need the men to walk beside the women. Mm -hmm. um, Walker says that, you know, a woman is, is a woman who loves other women. So, you know, so it's again, you know, very broad. And I think it was in many ways, kind of uh, ways in which Walker was kind of pushing the envelope, if, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, she first used the term in an essay that she wrote in the 1970s. And so we've kind of, again, just sort of taken it um, in biblical studies and in religious discourse um, for our own. So you have womanist sections and now even a womanist biblical hermeneutics section as well. So that's, that's womanist. Um, maternal having to do with motherhood. Um, so what does it mean then for a womanist if for us, we have this kind of triangulation of race, class, and gender? Feminists mm -hmm. primarily pivoted on the whole class and gender piece, really the gender piece, because yeah. they, yeah. they really left the class stuff out and they definitely left the race mm -hmm. stuff out. That's right. But you had women is saying, well, wait a minute, what about class? You know, how do we talk about status and how do we talk about the social ladder? How do mm -hmm. we talk about race? Because we know the story, you know, the feminists and the suffragists were really not concerned about Black women and voting rights. Yeah. And so yeah. womanists said, well, you know, we need to talk about race, class, and gender. So womanist maternal framework says, well, how do we talk about race, class, and gender through the lens of Black mothers? Yeah. And so what is it about the, the identity, going back to that, what is it about the identity, the existential reality of Black mothers that really helps us to have a different way of thinking about race, class, and gender, and really how they all three are in conversation yeah. with each other? Thank you so much. I, I'm he, I number one. I think that is such a beautifully succinct and clear explanation, just as you give in your book. But I also am hearing, um, like, if we have male listeners who are going, well, why, why should this matter to me? And I love what you said is that, like, in a womanist perspective, and even in a womanist maternal perspective, it's not about edging out the participation of men, but rather calling them into it. And I think that that's something you lay out so beautifully in your book. So again, people should go get it. But the other thing that I was so um, edified and challenged by as a man reading your book um, was the way that this framework of womanist maternal thought changes or challenges um, interpretations of scripture or enriches it. And um, and you you spoke about one of my favorite biblical characters. So I, I would love to talk about the intersection of race and class and gender when we're talking about Rispa. Um, I I I discovered Rispa a couple years ago when I was searching for a paper or researching for a paper, and I became 
it was actually my first introduction to womanism because I, there was no scholarship about RISPA except for womanists. That's, a, that's dramatic, but there seemed to be no scholarship about RISPA, no satisfying scholarship about RISPA except for womanists. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about her story and um, maybe talk about how it's resonating with women and black mothers today. Sure. I think one of the things that I, I try to do is to broaden how we think of motherhood so that motherhood is not attached to sex or gender. Um, so what I also do is say, well, what are ways in which we think of mothering as that which is nurturing, as to mother to support, as mother to guide? I talk about motherhood as advocacy, uh, motherhood mm. as surrogacy. So here are ways also, like I think, where, where men can also, if you will, enter into um, the conversation. I tell us, I said, we all came from a mother, whether, <laughs> you know, we, we like her or not, or have a wonderful relationship with the mother or not. So again, trying to find ways to sort of broaden, if you will, the definition around motherhood, and so that it is more inclusive. Um, what I was trying to do with RISPA was number one, take an obscure character yeah. because I had grown up. It's like, there is this beautiful story, mm-hmm. you know, in second Samuel of Saul's concubine. That's a class piece that we're dealing with right, right there. Um, who takes, who really not takes, but has to sacrifice her two sons, but also, five grandsons of Saul. David is king now. So this way in which history just keeps on giving for lack of a better Mm. word or continues to have this residual effect and impact. So here is Rispa, Saul's concubine, and she is forced to basically watch her two sons and five other Mm. men, you know, get impaled or hanged or some people think it's kind of a precursor to crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Rispa does this. So there's the whole class piece around that. There's the whole motherhood and nurturing around that. I also brought into the whole issue of race using the concept of communal mothering. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we talk about that within the Black community, you know, you grew up in neighborhoods and, you know, Miss so-and-so could easily check you. And if Miss So-and-so, you know, if Miss Pearl or Miss, you know, Miss Sue checked you, you know, and it got back to your mother or your grandmother that Miss Sue or Miss Pearl checked you for something, then your mother or your grandmother would check you again for that. <laughs> so that idea of, of communal mothering, but also the kind of political nuance around communal mothering. Um, because we learn that in the end, David finds out in this passage that because of what Rispa did for 90 days, for three months, that it changed the trajectory yeah. of the nation. Yeah, That's the power. That's the gravitas um, mm. of communal mothering. That's the power of an Ella Baker, right? That's mm-hmm. the power of a Fannie Lou Hamer who yeah, didn't man. have children, but she reared um, adopted children and, you know, had a Mississippi appendectomy, if you will. (laughs) That's the power of, you know, a Mary Church Terrell who, you know, lost children, had miscarriages, but yet was still all about the fight. So I used Rispa to talk about the whole class piece, because again, she's kind of the second tier wife, if you want to say she's a wife, 
So there's the class piece, there's the race, and how do you think about, you know, communal mothering, and yes, her own motherhood and maternal sacrifice, but also how you think about, you know, this whole issue of, of gender, that it is that she didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, she was forced. David just says, well, okay, here are two of Saul's seeds and here are five more of Saul's seeds. They're going to be sacrificed so that we can get this rectified. And your know, yeah. word gets back to David. And if you notice in that passage, David doesn't ask, well, Rizpah, how are you doing? You know, yeah. you know, it's, it's, right. it's been, it's been three months. Are you okay? We don't hear any more, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have Rizpah talking at all. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that's also this kind of gender piece and this kind of, um, erasure and silencing that we have um, in this passage. It's a difficult passage. It's a hard passage. But I also wanted to lift Rizba uh, because I had um, Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mother, on mm-hmm. my mind. Mm-hmm. I had Lucia Macbeth, Jordan Davis's mother, on my mind. Absolutely. I had um, Michael Brown's mother um, on my mind. Um, and I think, you know, we can also think what were. Um, uh, George Floyd's last words. Yeah. He was calling for his mother. Yes, um, and so I, you know, I was thinking about these community mothers, right? These mothers yeah. of the movement, you know, now, and how it is that kind of, you know, black maternal death is being so politicized mm-hmm. um, in so many regards, and the politicizing even around what happens with Rispa and these men, these yeah. boys, um, in this passage. I. I was going to jump on that and say, I, when I read that Rispa passage for one of the first times, I, I'm a big Nina Simone fan. I love Nina Simone. And so, and as I mentioned, I listened to a lot of Billie Holiday and all I could hear was strange fruit because the language of the passage is so oddly similar to the text um, and made me all the more frustrated that I had never um, encountered her story, her experience. And, um, and I so appreciate your explanation and exploration of her story. And also the way that, um, womanist maternal thought enriches the, 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 the complexities of what's going on of saying like, she, she, we really never hear her speak. And yet her body speaks, right. Using her body to fend off the birds of the air, from her child's body and people who are not her children is so powerful, so much so that it moves, it changes the king's mind. And I think that's really powerful. So I appreciate that. Yeah, but her, her maternal work shifts the, shifts the, the narrative, it shifts the past, path, it shifts the trajectory of a nation. Yeah. Yeah. And so whatever had been happening with the Gibeonites, you know, it's kind of lifted. And remember, it was a three-year drought. And ah. Uh, yeah. Because of Rispa's sacrifice, uh, the land mm-hmm. is able to breathe and almost exhale again. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that mm-hmm. God, you know, blesses and the, the showers come because mm-hmm. of Rispa's maternal sacrifice. Oh, it really is such a powerful story. I, I, I will admit when when Blake and I first uh, perused the contents of your book and we saw a chapter on Rispa, I thought, oh my gosh, we have to read this. This is this is so great. You know, you, you don't often see um, that level of attention being given to such a, a wonderful but but small and underserved story. Um, and truly in the introduction to that chapter, when you're talking about the mothers and the losses, George Floyd 
came to mind. And it was the fact that you mentioned him in a way, it, it, I think it's worth noting, especially for our listeners, just to take a moment and say, you know, your book was written back in 2016 and there are still applicable narrative references for this very thing. And, and, you know, come Lord Jesus, we're just, just, I just wanted to take a minute to sit with that. Um, but, uh, the, the book still speaks and, and that's really wonderful. Um, I have another chapter that I, I just want to dip into a little bit for my own indulgence, the chapter on Hagar, because as you address with Rizba, there's a there's a narrative that deals with class, but also just generally power and powerlessness. And uh, Hagar's story also is often overlooked, underserved in the way we we address uh, theological themes in, in uh, Abraham and Sarah's life. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Hagar's power and powerlessness as seen through the womanist maternal thought. Sure. You know, I admit, I, I give um, a lot of, I, I pay homage, if you will, to Dr. Dolores Williams and her yes. book, Sisters in the Wilderness, yes. which was just so seminal and just kind of bringing, bringing womanist, although she was just a theologian, but it's bringing womanist, you know, biblical studies, you know, to yeah. the forefront in, in, in many regards. Yeah. Um, and so what, what I was trying to do with Hagar, uh, this whole issue of homelessness mm. um, and it, going back to identity, um, when we first, when we moved, I, I was not teaching, but I, and I spent a, but I spent a lot of time volunteering at a homeless shelter mm-hmm. um, and just seeing the number of women mm-hmm. and, and coming to know that many of these women were mothers Mm-hmm. And that this particular shelter was only for women. Mm-hmm. So these women were separated from their children. Their mm-hmm. children were elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so this mm-hmm. whole issue of, of homelessness just really mm-hmm. struck a chord with me. Um, and just thinking about Hagar's own displacement. And it's just so ironic because you get covenant, you get Hagar, you get covenant, some more stuff, and then you get Hagar again. Mm-hmm. So the way in which this narrative around her, you know, is almost bracketed and interlaced with God's covenant, God's promise to Abram, who becomes Abraham. And mm-hmm. um, so the whole issue of, of power for me, uh, Hagar has power because she's fertile. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. that's power, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, in this patriarchal, patrilineal, patronomial society, the fact that she's able, you know, to give birth, that's a part of her power. Yeah. Well, you yeah. also notice in the first time that she's mentioned, the Bible says that Hagar runs away. Mm-hmm. So there's power there. And so you have Sarah and Abraham going back and forth, you know, about this. And Abraham is like, well, she's yours. And Sarah's <laughs> like, well, you went into her. And Abraham's like, well, you told me, to. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's a yeah. crazy dialogue. And Hagar's like, you know what, I'm out. <laughs> so in the first, you know, that chapter 16, she's, she leaves. She takes, you know, Ishmael and, and she leaves or mm-hmm. she takes the son. And then it's in the wilderness where he's given his name Ishmael, mm-hmm. um, you know, the God who hears and then also the God who sees. The sensory language is beautiful. God doesn't look so great in in this passage because God tells what? God says, Hagar, go back. You're like, you're kidding me, go back. Mm. So in that regard, there's this kind of 
you know, deflation of power because, well, she goes back. And then there's another beautiful chapter where, you know, oh, well, you know, here's here's covenant with Ishmael. So now that there's this, this mess, if you will, that Abraham and Sarah have created, what are we going to do now? Well, okay, well, there'll be a covenant related to Ishmael as well. Mm. Hagar goes back and Sarah, you know, finds out finally she's able to give birth too, but Sarah still has some issues. Mm. You know, well, why is her kid playing with my kid? <laughs> you know, and it's kind of this baby's daddy kind of drama that's happening, yeah. um, if you will. Yeah. And more conversation. And Sarah's like, she has to go. And, you know, now we have, a, you know, Abraham who's like, well, you know, why? So uh, anyway, but anyway, Hagar gets put out. So now there's this powerlessness. And again, in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And she seems more vulnerable now. Because she's thinking, look, we're, we're just going to die. But notice the language in this. It, it is not so much that, I mean, God gets a bad rap, I say. It doesn't say that God hears Hagar's cry. But God responds to the crying of the boy. Yeah. And you're like, you got to be kidding me, right? Mm-hmm. That, again, this whole patriarchy and, and the writers still pivot, you know, towards <laughs> It's, it's God responding to the cry of Ishmael and not the mm-hmm. cry of Hagar. So there's that powerlessness as well. But yet, Hagar gets to reclaim some of that mm-hmm. because in the end, what does she do? She says, you know what? I'm going back to my people. You know, I've been around all these other folks and their people. I'm going home. I'm going back to Egypt. And what, I, what am I going to do? I'm going to find a wife my son among the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And that's what she does. Um, so it's kind of um, it's kind of give and take with Hagar's power and, and powerlessness. Yeah. I mean, you see the class mm-hmm. because you have Sarah and Abram, you know, making decisions for her. I mean, it's very clear she's a slave. Yeah. Um, the gender dynamics, just the women themselves, right? You know, yeah. this kind of well, who's the baby's daddy? And is my my baby's daddy first? And no, is my baby's daddy now? And well, I don't like her son playing with my son. Just all of this kind of drama that you see. And who's impacted by this? Well, Ishmael's impacted by this because, you know, he ends up in the wilderness and being, you know, homeless for yeah. a moment with his mother um, yeah. because of all of this bureaucracy that's happening um, with Abraham, Sarah, and I would even dare say the divine in this regard. Mm. And I think the other thing about that passage that I love so dearly, even though it still is such a place of tension, is Hagar naming God, being the first person to name God. And that's just a moment of like, in a, in a passage that feels so, um, so wrought with, well, what is going on in this passage? And then like this beautiful moment where she gets to... The Elroy, the God who sees, yeah. you know, yeah, absolutely. Mm, and not just it. sees, but sees, sees about it. And, you know, mm. yeah, the yeah. God who hears, the God who sees, and the mm. God who provides. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. But before you go, we want to make sure that people know not only that they should go pick up When Mama Speaks, The Bible and Motherhood from a Womanist Perspective, the book we've been discussing today, but also how to keep up with you as you continue to do work and as you continue to sure. work. Sure, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at uh, step, S-T-E-P, 
P, P as in Paul, B as in boy Crowder at Step B Crowder. So I, I, I love Twitter. I love the engagement on Twitter. Yes. Um, I think I have the same one on Instagram and I don't really respond on Instagram, <laughs> Facebook. I mean, I just, I just kind of look mm-hmm. and, and I got it. Well, I got Instagram because of my son. So that's another story. <laughs> um, I, I hear that. Yeah. I respect it. Um, and, and I'm on Facebook at Stephanie Buchanan Crowder. Um, so, you know, that's the way to, to find me. Um, you know, I, I love the conversations on Twitter um, and just being able to sort of tap here and tap there and, and to meet folk. Sometimes you meet some of the wrong folk, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, that's a part of putting yourself out there. Um, so, yeah, you know, hit me up. Um, and um, let's let's have some conversation again. Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Erin, for the opportunity. Always happy to talk about you know motherhood and womanist maternal thought and just ways in which you you're so you know five years ago this is what I had in mind, mm-hmm. but but here we are. I think you know Maude Alberry's child, you know yeah. and what his family must be you know experiencing and and, and thinking and processing even now um, that unfortunately. You know, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving, you know, and yeah. as we talk about ways in which the motherhood uh, becomes politicized mm. and becomes front and center, Black motherhood um, yeah. becomes comes to the forefront in so many um, harrowing ways in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, how do we also celebrate it um, yes. as yeah. well? So where, you know, there's a risk, you know, there's a Bathsheba who says, hey, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in charge. I'm running this. And, yeah. you know, there's a Mrs. Zebedee who says, well, you know, I want some kingdom, too, for myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good chapter. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we, we, we want all of our listeners to go pick us up. We also want to thank you, especially for coming and talking to us on your sabbatical. We wish you a wonderful sabbatical. Can you give us a little preview of what uh, we might be on the lookout for, a project you might be working on next? So I'm, I'm just looking at, you know, this way in which um, women kind of question themselves, um, you know, in leadership positions. Um, I finished watching um, Pauli Murray. I don't know if you, that's, that's on mm. a certain, um, you know, network that I won't name, but um, it's, it's called I Am Pauli Murray. Pauli Murray um, was really the one that if we want to talk about the civil rights movement, if you want to talk about women's rights, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, we've got to talk, it said before she passed away, we've got to talk about Pauli Murray. Mm. Pauli Murray, phenomenal. But Pauli Murray questioned her abilities. Mm. Just amazing. And so, you know, we call it different things. Is it imposter syndrome phenomenon? But I'm just really curious at kind of what are the, what systems are in place, what structures are in place that cause well-qualified, well-educated women and like some men to just sort of question their own sense of identity and and integrity. So just looking Mm. at that from a biblical and theological perspective. Fantastic. I am so looking forward to that. Listeners, be on the lookout for Dr. Crowder. This is, this is going to be, this is going to be some good stuff. And thank you so much, listeners, for joining us today. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can hear weekly from our other co-hosts and other themes as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. We'll be sure to include all of Dr. Crowder's social media links in the show notes, so check that out. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You should also go to their website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos, listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit their bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents and leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. We'd like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host, Aaron Monez, where mutuality matters. Thanks so much for listening. Give to CBE's Giving Tuesday God Values Women fundraiser at cbe.today slash giving Tuesday. If you give between now and November 30th, your gift will be doubled. You will help CBE build a strong online voice to educate and advocate for women's equality in the church, address abuse in Africa, and distribute CBE's new books so churches can create safe spaces where women and men flourish together. Again, you can give securely online at cbe.today slash Tuesday. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.